But then we started to realize we were touching people in every walk of life, you know, from demographic and age groups and geographies. And that's when it really became sort of that aha that like, this is going to be massive. And if we can do this well, and we can do it as a chartered bank, bring real innovation to a segment of our society that has been in many ways systemically excluded from the system, it could be incredibly powerful. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Colin Walsh, CEO of Varro Bank, a U.S. consumer fintech that was founded to make a powerful impact on systemic financial inequality. In order to do this, they had to take hard decisions up front to create a platform that would allow them to grow sustainably. Colin will take us through how they're overcoming inequality and giving millions of Americans the tools to improve their financial health while creating a profitable, economically viable business. Colin, thank you for joining us uh, on the podcast. Um, I just wanted to kind of get us going if you could say a little bit about Varo and, and maybe talk a little bit about how you see your role in it. Absolutely. Well, first off, Varo, uh, I'm the founder. So I founded the company just a little over six years ago after having spent you know, quite a bit of time in more traditional financial services companies. And the inspiration for founding this company was very much born from the sort of belief and also practitioner knowledge that the system works really well for people who have money, steady incomes and savings and are doing well. Banks really want to do everything they can to win the business and hold on to those customers. But for people who are struggling to kind of make ends meet and don't have all those advantages, the system is really hard. I mean, it's really hard to sort of find solutions to bridge cash flow. It's really hard to kind of start building savings habits. There's just not a lot of tools or incentives or education for folks who don't have credit or they've got damaged credit. They're just accessing credit, finding tools to improve your credit and build a credit history. The system just doesn't work for people like that. And so for me, you know, Varo was really kind of the culmination of all these years experience, but also recognizing that technology had evolved to a place where we could create something that not only could we have a meaningful impact on the lives of millions of people, but also we could profitably serve this group of mass market consumers, which has been part of the reason why there are not good products and services available is that the economics simply don't work. So the economic incentive isn't there for the incumbents. So that's the inspiration behind Barrow being born. And, and, you know, here we are six years later and nothing's changed that much other than the fact that there's been a lot of good execution. So we're, you know, the first and and still the only consumer fintech in the United States that that went the de novo chartering route and is operating under a full OCC National Bank charter. We're also a direct member of the FDIC and uh, we're a member of the Federal Reserve System. So we have direct access to the payment systems. We're a fully regulated national bank, which affords us 
a number of advantages, but it also, you know, holds us to a higher level of scrutiny as well with our regulators, which is at the end of the day, a really good thing for our consumers. Yeah, no, that that's really great that you've touched on a number of things that we might want to come back to. What would you say the purpose then of, of the business is? What we call our massive transformational purpose. So if you, if you read the book, Exponential Organizations, it talks about every company should have an MTP. It, and it really is about bringing greater financial inclusion and opportunity to everyone we can serve. And this to us is so core to who we are. It's why people join Borrow. It's why people work so hard to make it successful, is we really believe that we are building something that starts with individuals and families, but it ladders up to communities and then ultimately can have societal level impact in terms of helping people build that sense of financial control and greater stability and resiliency and, and helping millions of people who you know, it, it's just very daunting. Like the wealth ladder is just so broken for so many people, particularly if you look into people who may have lower moderate incomes, people of color. There's been like, you know, systemic exclusion in the United States in particular, but I'm sure this exists elsewhere in the world. And our ability to help people feel that sense of agency in their financial lives and then ultimately see a path towards greater financial freedom. And that is what drives us. That is our massive transformational purpose. It's our vision and it really informs all the strategic decisions that we make as an organization. And it sounds like you started with that purpose. It wasn't something you sort of found along the way or whatever, that that was the original sort of driving idea behind the business. The founding idea behind the business was absolutely around creating greater access and greater inclusion and providing tools and using technology and data to help people, you know, sort of climb this broken ladder. I think what we learned along the way that I probably did not appreciate nearly enough when I started the company was how big and deep the problems were. And as we launched our first product, which was in the middle of 2017, it was just on the iOS, the Apple iOS platform. And we built a number of features that you know, early customers found appealing and they started to engage, providing us with important signal that actually there really is something here and it's working and, and it's starting to scale up. But it wasn't until we launched Android and then we launched the web platform that we realized how vast and how deep the markets were. And we started to see sort of viral loops forming in communities in the Southeast of the United States and in rural parts of the Midwest. And, and suddenly like it started to take off in a powerful way. And we you know, hired a team of design researchers right from the very beginning, put features into our app, suggest a feature and other things that were allowing us to get very close to the customer. And, and it was through those insights that we started to learn just how many people could benefit from what we were doing. The initial view was that these were going to be younger people, people that were starting out and really didn't have access to some of the tools and the technology and, and some of the 
uh, services that we could offer. But then we started to realize we were touching people in every walk of life, you know, from demographic and age groups and geographies. And that's when it really became sort of that aha that like, this is going to be massive. And if we can do this well, and we can do it as a chartered bank, bring real innovation to a segment of our society that has been in many ways systemically excluded from the system, it could be incredibly powerful. So our conviction and excitement only just continued to grow as we've gotten further along on the journey. Can you give me a sense of the scale of where things have gotten to now? Yeah, well, we have over, I want to say over four, 5 million accounts that, you know, on the platform since we started, but, you know, growing very rapidly. We had our largest customer acquisition last quarter and, you know, we're continuing to introduce new products that are so foundational to what we're trying to do. So we started out with uh, bringing a digital bank account that eliminated hundreds of dollars of fees for our customers. It gave them early access to their paychecks. We were providing them tools to start to build savings habits, you know, paying extra interest for customers that were building a relationship with us. Then we moved into credit, small dollar credit, helping folks access credit, largely, you know, bridging them to the next paycheck. Um, and then in the fall, we introduced a secured credit card to help our customers build credit. So it's a credit card that doesn't have any sort of minimums and you don't have to set aside a certain amount. You can just kind of pay as you go. But every time you use it, it's really a payment account. At the end of the month, it gets swept into paying off the balance and it gets reported to the bureaus. And already, I mean, it's having a huge impact for our customers. We're getting lots of positive feedback about like, wow, my credit score is starting to go up. And being able to provide tools like this that are just so foundational to help having a healthy financial life. And it's not so much any one particular product feature. It's really how they come together as a holistic system that helps focus on you know, control, stability, resilience. And then ultimately, as we think about the future, you know, how we provide access to larger amounts of credit, how we help to give folks uh, access to solutions to build wealth. And then ultimately, who knows where it could go into home ownership or helping people with education, uh, helping people perhaps that might want to start a business. But you know, one of the beauties of being a bank is that we have the ability to do a number of things over the long run to really help grow with our customers as they start to uh, sort of move up that ladder. Mm -hmm. Now, I know it's, it's all really obvious to you but I suspect some of the folks listening won't understand all the implications of being chartered versus what everybody else is doing. So if you could, I'm sure there's depths of technicality we won't have time for, but just, just in the very broad outline. I could just uh, highlight a few of the, you know, both from a consumer perspective, but then also from just the economics and what it means for being able to have a credible path towards profitability and generating our own capital. And so I would say on the consumer front, there are a number of things. I mean, more from a brand perception and a kind of a, an emotional standpoint, there's just the legitimacy. We're a bank, you know, so like we're regulated. This is about, you know, people's future. It's about their money. It's about, you know, making sure that like, wow, if I'm going to put my paycheck with you every month, like I want to make sure my money's there and it gets to where it needs to go and I have bills to pay and all the rest of that. So I think there's a legitimacy associated with being a fully regulated entity. Um, and, and we do hear that from our customers. I mean, so that's not just me saying that it's, it's actually, you know, research-based. I think the other piece, though, that's probably even more powerful and impactful is the breadth of product solutions we can bring to bear. 
And so I talked about, you know, payments and being able to give access, you know, speed matters a lot to customers who don't have a lot of money. They need access to money quickly. And so being able to be integrated into all of the sort of digital payment systems, being able to have a number of different payment options, whether it's ACH or, or uh, card-based or peer-to-peer and, and um, like we're going to be joining the Zelle network, which is a U.S.-based network that can pay anybody or you can receive money from anyone who has a bank account, you know, things of that nature. On the credit side, being able to offer you know, unsecured credit, uh, secured credit, being able to use information to make better underwriting decisions to help people access credit that might not traditionally have access to credit. And then things like wealth building solutions and some of the things that I said, you know, maybe further afield that we can pursue. But as our own chartered bank, those products, that wide product set is sort of within the permissions as opposed to if we're working with a partner bank, there's a much more narrow set of things that you're able to do because you're dealing typically with smaller banks that only have permission to offer a certain number of things on a white label basis to these sort of fintech program managers. And that was the case when, before we became a bank, we were working with the Bancorp Bank and we had a great relationship with them, but it was a very narrow set of things that we could do versus now we have a much more breadth. And I touched on it briefly, but I think the other piece that is a huge advantage, and it's really starting to manifest itself for our customers as well, is just how we can leverage our data. Because as a fully national bank, we kind of own the stack end to end. Like we don't outsource the BSA, AML, or the deposit and payment operations, or some of the other things that the sponsor banks manage for their program managers. And so we really do own the whole stack. And as a result of that, we also have the full breadth of data that we can use for anything from financial crime detection, you know, sort of fraud, keeping out bad actors, to how we think about credit underwriting, to how we use data for creating more personalized experiences for our customers. And with the sponsor bank model, you're actually quite limited in terms of what exactly you can do with that data, because technically the sponsor bank owns that customer relationship. They own that transactional data. So for instance, like using that information for underwriting purposes, they won't allow you to do that because they don't want to become a credit reporting agent. So, you know, particularly if they're only given permission to offer deposit accounts, you know, if you're off or making loans. So there's all that kind of friction tied into the model that, that's basically released for us. And it just creates a much better experience for our customers. So that's the customer angle. From, from, a, from a more economic standpoint, there are a number of things that, that are incredibly beneficial in our business model. So one is we've effectively eliminated an intermediary. So when you're dealing with another bank, they have to share in the economics of your business and and they have to cover their cost of capital. So despite what anybody will tell you, like, oh, we've achieved such scale, we've negotiated these costs. I mean, those are still real costs. So like since we eliminated that sponsor bank part of our model, our, our what we call our costs of goods sold have gone down 65%. I mean, so it's a meaningful reduction in our costs. And, and then the other piece of it is uh, just from a lending perspective, like we have a balance sheet, you know, and we collect deposits. And so when we make loans, we don't have to go out and source capital markets funding. You know, we have low cost deposits. And, and so we can use that. And it's also a very sticky source of funding for us. So any fintech that wants to make loans, they have to have some sort of a capital markets relationship. And those are expensive. So again, there's a number of ways in which our economics just have become so much better. And so our gross margin in terms of our ability to compete, you know, is substantially higher. So it allows us to, you know, if we want to go after certain customer segments, we could probably absorb higher CAC. We can do better things from a product value proposition perspective and still make those unit economics work. So for me, what, what I love the most is that, you know, this is one of those rare 
businesses where you can create an incredibly valuable business at the same time you're having a huge impact on people's lives and you can really build something that could have societal level impact at, at scale. And it, it, there aren't that many businesses out there where you can really confidently say that. And so it's really exciting from our standpoint. Mm, mm. You know, I can see why. I think I've picked up sort of two building blocks of your strategy. It seems that one, clearly a key bit of this is getting chartered. And then it feels like another one is just really being close to your customer, really making sure you understand what's going on with them. You're tracking what's happening and what their behavior is. Are there other sort of planks of the strategy you might point to? Yeah, there's the business model differentiation that comes from being a fully chartered bank, but also there's an element of more, probably more of a product element, you know, this sort of rebundling that's occurring. You know, you hear a lot of fintechs and others talking about the super app and they're going to create a super app and, you know, super apps can sort of look like you know, the kitchen sink after a busy dinner party, if you're just throwing a lot of features without actually designing with purpose. And, you know, I think there's a purpose to what we're doing, really understanding the pain points that our customers are trying to solve for and the sort of broader state that we're trying to help move our customers towards, which is this greater sense of resilience and agency in their financial lives. And so there's an intent behind what we do from our product perspective and the product roadmap that we've been pursuing for some time now and continues to evolve as our customer are evolving as well. And I think that's a core element of the strategy as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the purpose, it, it sounded like you started off with a broad purpose. And then as you began to realize sort of the bigger impact you could have, it, in some sense, it feels like it almost expanded. Yeah, it is quite broad and in many respects. And but we're also keep in mind, you know, serving a very broad audience of consumers. So, you know, we estimate that there are some hundred and eighty million consumers in various segments that we could effectively serve and provide a better service to just here in the US alone. And so it's just a massive town. And so, yes, it, it is quite broad. But at the same time, we, we drill into, you know, who are the people that are using our product? We sort of defined the U.S. consumer based in sort of three broad segments and then a number of subsegments. So on the broadest level, we look at a group of people that we call the battlers that are really having a hard time and they've had a hard time most of their lives and they have a lot of volatility in both their income and their cash flows. We serve those customers. They come to us, they are attracted to it, but that's not our core focus. So then there's a group that we call the builders. And these are kind of middle-class Americans that, you know, may basically have felt a lot of the inequality pressure. So, you know, they haven't seen sort of wages and salary keep up with just the expenses, whether it's everything from, you know, transportation and food and housing and education. And so they're really under a lot of financial pressure. And this is a massive group. When we think about 140 million consumers in the U.S., the battlers are about 40 million. And then there's a group on the higher end, which we call the optimizers, who do quite well. And they have, you know, good credit scores and they've got investments and tend to be homeowners and so on and so forth. And these are the group the banks are actively targeting. And so that's really not the target segment that we're going after. So then within that sort of what we call the builder segment, these are the 140 million sort of middle-class Americans. There's actually three groups that we've identified within that. And the first is what we call the hero builders. And these are people 
that have pulled themselves up out of the battler segment for the most part. And they know what it's like to have a lot of hardship in their life, but they've seen a better world for themselves and their families. And they're working hard to sort of create that future for themselves. That is our core segment right now. It's huge uh, and it's very high intent because these are folks that, that actually can see that better future. And then if borrow can be their trusted ally and, and giving them the tools and the products and the services that they need to feel that greater sense of control of their financial lives. You know, it's a win-win all around. There's also a couple of other segments within the builder segment. There's a group we call the explorers that tend to be younger and they're more starting out. And this was probably the group that I was initially focused on when we started Varo. They're just new to a lot of this. And so they don't have a lot of sophistication and they're kind of learning and trying different things. And that's an important segment for us as well, but it's not as big and I don't think as impactful as this hero segment. And then there's a group we call the creators. They're a little more sophisticated in just kind of their overall financial capability. They have a bit more stability in their lives. They're looking at, you know, starting to think about home ownership, starting to think about bigger needs that they have, you know, on their path towards becoming optimizers. And we feel like over time, we'll be able to do a much better job serving those folks. But really what I would love more than anything is to take people from that hero segment and move them to the creator segment. Like for me, that would be a job really well done. If we can do that at scale and, and get people to that, that better sense of like kind of where they can be and, and achieving the bigger goals in their lives, that would feel like a huge sense of accomplishment. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. As you've sort of been on this journey to sort of pursue this very purposeful strategy, what surprised you most? Well, any journey with any startup um, and any business, you know, there's just layers of complexity around, it's particularly when you try to do something like we're doing. I mean, I've certainly done easier things in my life than try to become a national bank and a scale of business. And, you know, we went from being in my living room to, you know, 800 some odd people and in sort of what feels like record time. And so there's just lots of things you are constantly learning every day. And innovating in financial services is highly complex. You know, I have fortunately the benefit of many years of having been inside the regulated financial system where I think it would be even more daunting for folks that are trying to do this for the first time that actually don't have all those years of experience. But even with that experience, it's still complex as you're doing it from scratch, constantly you know, bringing in the right talent at the right time. The company that we are today is not the company that we were a year ago or two years ago. And so you have to be kind of bringing people along for that journey and also understanding at some point where there's different people that are more appropriate for that next stage of the journey. So all of that requires a lot of leadership, a lot of um, communication, you know, really connecting with, with your people and your various group of stakeholders. Like we have a fairly large board. I have a lot of investors. We've raised nearly a billion dollars. I have regulators. I have my team. So there's really trying to balance with cross a very wide group of stakeholders and sort of bringing everybody along for that journey. Mm -hmm. And how would you say you've changed through all of that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I have definitely changed. I mean, I've learned how to be scrappy, how to figure out how to get by without a lot of resource, you know, how to make trade-off decisions that, you know, were sometimes you didn't have to because you had the luxury of, of lots of resource and lots of institutional prowess behind you. I've learned how to be very observant of team members and, and how they're scaling and how to help 
coach folks and um, how to inspire people to kind of move through the different phases of the journey. You know, I've learned how to deal with the diverse group of stakeholders. So it's been a fascinating experience for me personally, just in terms of learning how to run a business that kind of gone from zero to one to 10 in a, in a very rapid uh, time frame. And I feel like we're just getting started. I mean, if, if I've got the numbers right, you're at sort of four or five million and you're seeing 180. Yeah. You know, if we do things well and we follow a, a disciplined playbook, you know, be able to serve tens of millions of, of consumers. There's no real reason why this couldn't just continue to scale to become one of the really you know iconic brands in America and, and potentially beyond America someday. And if you had any advice for other business leaders who were wrestling with the purpose and strategy, particularly if they were contemplating taking on the kind of societal level change purpose that you've got, what would that advice be? Yeah, find something that you have a lot of passion for. Because there's good days and bad days and you got to like just got to stay the course and be really connected find people who share that vision and, and sense of purpose. And at all levels, I mean, not just the team that you put around you, but also the board you put in place, the investors you take on, you know, the relationships that you build along the way. Uh, it's really important to make sure that you do kind of assemble that group of folks who believe deeply and what you're trying to accomplish. That to me is, is so important. And don't be afraid to ask for help because, you know, I think where founders often find themselves, you know, very isolated is when they, you know, feel like they have all the answers or they don't want to go seek out help. I mean, people are absolutely willing to give advice. You don't always have to take their advice, but certainly being able to be willing to uh, keep your humility and say, look, I don't have all the answers to everything and seek out advisors and, and folks who can help you along the journey. Mm -hmm. Great advice. You mentioned investors. Any specific thoughts about dealing with that side of it? Well, it takes a lot of capital if you're going to do something like this. I mean, every business is different and has different sort of capital requirements. I think when I started out, I was talking to a number of the more traditional Silicon Valley investors and they would write smaller seed checks and kind of thought like, well, you know, I don't know, you come out of these big institutions and, you know, have you written code and like, you know, are you really the kind of person we'd want to fund? And so I very quickly realized that, you know what, I'm, I'm probably barking up the wrong tree and, and started then talking to folks in New York who are more traditional private equity. And so our first investor has been, was Warburg Pincus. You know, they believed in what we were doing, that, you know, the future of banking was definitely going to come through digital innovation. It was probably going to come more through the de novo path. The fact that we wanted to get a charter was very appealing to them. Um, you know, our second investor was TPG through the Rise Fund, you know, the largest global impact fund. And they also, you know, sort of shared conviction and belief. And, and those two investors have been with us all the way through, you know, we've raised all the way through our E-Round um, and they've continued to support us as we brought in, you know, a lot of other really wonderful new investors, uh, you know, along the way. And so, uh, but finding those early investors that, that, you know, want to be with you for the long term, that see and appreciate and value the vision of what you're trying to do. And it's not about just trying to make a quick buck uh, is really important. And that can kind of support you as you're building the business and building the team. And as I talked about, you know, building some of those relationships. Yeah. 
And anything I haven't asked you about that you wish I had? We didn't talk much about the competitive space. You know, I think the competitive dynamic is interesting because, you know, when I, six years ago, I talked about, you know, becoming a challenger bank and, and focusing on the core transactional account to build trust and build the relationship with customers. And everybody said, oh, you should just go build an app, you know, just go. But now everybody's doing exactly what we're doing, which is, very, you know, in many ways it's very validating, but the, the competitive space is certainly heated up. But I, I do think that we went from sort of a, a period of, there was a lot of point solutions, you know, sort of single focused apps dealing with single pain points to a place now where there is this broader, you know, sort of race to rebundle and, and be able to solve, you know, a more holistic set of needs. It's harder in a, in a sponsor bank model than in a fully chartered model. And this, therefore, you see others trying to pursue the bank charter route because I think they recognize some of the benefits that I talked about. But then I think the next stage of this is going to be sustainability. And, you know, how many of these competitors are going to be able to uh, find their way to profitability where they're not relying on third party capital uh, and being able to be real self-sustaining businesses over the long haul. And I think we're starting to see that shakeout occurring now in a number, you know, kind of rushed to the public markets because there was a cash out and their stocks are not performing well because they really, you know, I think investors are waking up to the fact that like, oh, if this is, there's no clear path to sustainability, you know, is this a business I want to keep piling money into. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this next chapter unfolds because, you know, for us, you know, becoming a profitable uh, bank is very important. And it's something that, you know, we spend a lot of time with our board and with our regulators on, you know, how to balance that, you know, sort of tension between growth and profitability because, you know, we raised a lot of capital, so we actually have a lot of capital, but we also want to spend it in, in, in the most responsible way so that we can also become a self-sustaining business over time. So that's going to be a very defining sort of next chapter in the evolution of fintech and some of the innovation that's happening. Good. Well, Colin, thank, I appreciate you sharing that with me. In some ways, for me, a bit of an update, but I, I suspect for a lot of people who are listening, it's a real window into somebody who's decided to take on a massive, massive sort of, in some senses, I don't think it's too strong language, societal failure, and to really try and do something about it in a in a way, I particularly like the way that you've sort of tied together the economics and this idea of giving people agency. I just think that the combination of those two, you know, sort of a winning economic strategy and a real belief in people is an incredibly powerful place to come from. Well, thanks, Beldit. Well, it's been it's been great to chat with you and to catch up, and uh, I hope this has been helpful to your listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to Belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.